and welcome to the Stock Podcast. I'm Nate Abercrombie, the host, and I'm here to share some sad news. As the title indicates, the Stock Podcast is coming to a close, at least for the time being. There are a number of reasons why I had to make this tough, well, really tough decision. So just give me a moment to explain. And it might even be worth talking about the Genesis story one more time. Before podcasting, I worked for a large mutual fund company called Janice Henderson, where I covered stocks in the energy and industrial sectors. One of the responsibilities of an equity researcher is to meet with management teams and to learn more about the business and to learn about new investment ideas. Professional investors call this corporate access, and it's something that institutional investors pay a lot of money for. And for the most part, the average investor doesn't have the chance to hear management teams talk about their business outside of earnings calls. I wanted to change that with this podcast. So for the past two years, I've poured my heart and soul into this program with the goal of ultimately creating a business out of this. From a commercial sense, this podcast was headed in the right direction. However, I genuinely missed equity research and investing. And while over the past two years I've been able to invest with my personal account, I really haven't been able to focus on investing. And over the last year, I've had numerous conversations with Chris Kelly about possibly working together. And if you don't know who Chris Kelly is, well, you should really check out the interview that was published on December 25th of last year, episode 45. But I've also included that interview in this episode at the end of my monologue, so stay tuned if you'd like to hear the interview with Chris. It really is a great interview, and Chris takes the time to describe his investment philosophy, his process, and he talks a lot about what's wrong with the investment industry today. Now, this is at least partly due to the fact that Chris was my mentor at Janus, but I wholeheartedly agree with a lot of his perspectives, and he and I share nearly identical investing principles. So for me to get to work with Chris again, investing is just something I couldn't say no to. But as it relates to the podcast, you'll still have access to at least part of the episodes. And if you're a paying member, then you can listen to the entire thing for, well, forever. I don't plan on closing it down. And I'm actually in conversations with a few people about possibly selling the podcast. So this program may live on under the management and leadership of someone else. But as for me, I'll be focusing my time on helping investors achieve superior returns at Legacy Ridge Capital Management. And if you're a high net worth individual and you're interested in investing, feel free to reach out to me and you can contact me at Nate at LegacyRidgeCapital.com. But before I end this, I'd really like to express some gratitude to a few people who have made a world of difference in keeping the podcast afloat up until now. Bob and Laura Schloss have been extremely generous in supporting this program. Another big benefactor is Dan Kozlowski with Plaisance Capital, as well as Mark Harding with Pure Cycle Corporation, one of my favorite guests to appear on the program. And finally, Mike Olson, the creator and producer behind Danheim. Just an aside, figuring out the music for this show was a really big deal for me. So to have one of my favorite artists give me permission to use their music has been one of my greatest joys for this program. So I really can't say thanks enough to Danheim's Mike Olson. Well, I'll leave it there. Please don't hesitate to reach out to me. Again, that's Nate at LegacyRidgeCapital.com or you can find me on LinkedIn. Thank you so much to everyone who has already reached out, has supported the show in some way, shape or form for telling people about the program. I'm immensely grateful for all of your support. Take care and good luck with your portfolio. 
the way I start out all these interviews is just hearing about my guest's background. So I grew up in in Denver. I uh, went to public high school here. You know, spent uh, four years in the Air Force at a Buckley Air Force Base in Aurora. And then uh, worked for uh, a small wealth manager in Denver for, I guess, two and a half to three years before business school at uh, University of Chicago. After business school, went and uh, ended up working at Janus as a uh, junior analyst. I was one of the, I believe, 10 junior analysts of their inaugural junior analyst class for 2008. That was the first, last, and only junior analyst class at Janus. <laughs> You were one of the first people to know that I was going to start this podcast. Why is it taking you so long to come onto the program? Well, uh, actually, it's it's the fact that Brad and Britton came on your show, and I've always loved Brad and Britton and their frontier kind of guys, always forward thinking. So, you know, if I can be two steps behind them rather than the 20 steps I usually am. I feel like I'm making progress. <laughs> no, I hear you there, but you're, you're actually one step ahead of them in the sense that you've already got a fund set up, right? I do have a, uh, a, a fund set up, a, a very small, tiny fund that hopefully will grow someday, uh, you know, not so much because of marketing, but more because of compounding than anything else. But um, yes, but those guys will, I'm sure, get their set up and uh, far surpass me in a matter of weeks. <laughs> It'll take them two f- telephone calls rather than two decades of track record that it's going to take me. So, <laughs> but they're awesome. They're great, and and anybody with extra capital should invest with those guys. Talk a little bit about your fund, if you can. So, mm-hmm. w- what is the philosophy? What kinds of stocks do you own? What what's the investment case for your fund in particular? So, I've always wanted to have my own fund or investment firm, I guess, whoever you wanted to look at it. That was principally modeled off of the original Buffett partnership. One in the structure in that it was primarily small individual investors, uh, two in the concentration of the portfolio, and then three just in uh, fee structure. And so I'm currently uh, myself and one other key investor that I have and then we'll hopefully be adding more. Um, I run extremely concentrated. 75% of my fund is in four ideas, maybe five at this point. And then fee structure, I only charge a performance fee over a 4% hurdle rate. And, you know, I think what's primarily interesting about this structure is, you know, it's not a marketing organization. I'm not out to try and collect 50 basis points or 100 basis points every year and grow assets so I have a comfortable lifestyle, I'm really just trying to uh, compound wealth over time. I've got nearly all of my own family's money in it. And, you know, I try and stick to, to what I know, which is a very limited universe. But I think that's key to being a successful investor, obviously, is knowing how small that universe is. As Buffett's talked about, the circle of competence is key. And knowing when you're outside of that circle or when you're getting outside of that circle is key to not making a a ton of mistakes. And I've made my share of mistakes within my own circle of competence. But, you know, I'm pretty committed to sticking with what I know at this point, which is largely energy infrastructure, uh, whether it be midstream or, you know, some element of like the IPP model, which, you know, 
10 times better than I do or anything else kind of up and down the energy value chain. But but I try and stick to the service and tool sellers and the transportation companies um, related to energy, not so much to the shale E&P companies. Um, and then aside from that, also uh, airlines, which is a very odd mix, but uh, the airline business model is an interesting one. Um, it has changed primarily in the U.S. over the past uh, decade, and I've been lucky enough to kind of be in the driver's seat of watching that happen. And globally, I think there's interesting ideas in airlines. You know, I can't sit here and tell you that there's some great relationship between airlines and energy, but oddly enough, it, it somewhat does make sense because generally 30% of an airline's operating cost is jet fuel. So, you know, there is some rhyme or reason on why you could invest in these two spaces as almost a, a natural hedge for each other. But but I frankly, I don't look at it like that. I just kind of look at those are the the sectors that I've covered. Those are the sectors I've been successful in. Those are the sectors that I know. And so that's what I'm sticking to at this point in time. Um, if you looked at my portfolio today, it's eight stocks, two of which are airlines, four of which are midstream energy, two of which are IPPs. And that might change a little bit over time, but it's all going to be valuation dependent. And so that's kind of what I'm I'm sticking to. You know, my, my influences have been a handful of very successful investors that I think approach the business not as a business, but as like a real profession, as as your family physician would. And it's got a lot of meaning. And, you know, this is a very important job. And I think the second you start approaching it like like a real business, you know, you've got that classic principal agent problem and the agent is in trouble um, because you're thinking of other things that benefit you as the principal and not the agent. And so I think that this structure, a small partnership with primarily only a performance fee attached to it is the right model for a two, three decade type of partnership. You earn your chops as a junior analyst with the airlines. Could you just talk about what was going on with the airline industry when you first started at Janus? And then I think it's an equally interesting story about MLPs. So maybe we'll get to that afterwards. But just focusing on airlines right now, like what was it about airlines that compelled you to push portfolio managers at Janus to, to own the airlines? To be fair, when I got to Janus... We own, we own some airlines. One of the portfolio managers who's a mentor of mine, Brent Lynn, owns some airlines. But it was almost, I think, as a hedge against the rest of his portfolio, which was pretty heavy energy uh, because oil at the time uh, was $145 a barrel. And nobody else wanted to cover the airlines. You know, there's that classic Buffett line, of course, of how you become a millionaire. It's you start as a billionaire, buy an airline, and you'll be a millionaire before you know it. <laughs> and and you know, being kind of hardcore from that school and not thinking a lot about it, like that was the last space I wanted to cover. <laughs> um, yeah, it just made you feel dirty. But if you could actually step back and get rid of the biases and actually look at what was happening in the industry. Ironically, as a result of $145 a barrel oil, you could see a changing industry. And, you know, I think right around that time, 
Uh, you had Delta and Northwest merge. You know, shortly after that, you had United and Continental merge. Uh, shortly after that, you had American and U.S. Air merge. Um, and then you also had Southwest make an acquisition of AirTran. So the industry consolidated really fast, and it had to because it looked like the model was unsustainable at $145 a barrel. If oil would have stayed at $50 a barrel, the impetus to merge probably would not have been there for these companies, um, or not as great. I would say that the management teams were far better as well in that period, and a lot of this was kind of triggered and started by the the America West guys, um, Scott Kirby in particular, that kind of forced everybody's hand at the poker table. But you could you could see the industry changing and consolidating, and you know you you couldn't be certain that that was going to work. But the risk reward became much more favorable uh, with that as a backdrop. And you had United Airlines, I think August or September of 2009, go to essentially $3 a share. And I had just launched on this company. It was the first stock I launched on at Janus at $10 a share as a strong buy. (laughs) And it promptly went to $3 a share. And the third quarter for airlines is, from a cash flow perspective, always the bleakest because you're kind of, you know, burning working capital. And it seemed relatively possible that this company could go bankrupt. And so that was scary. Uh, but, you know, they, they ended up not going bankrupt, you know, did some very expensive financing, came out of it. And then uh, I think less than a year later had merged with Continental or, or were in the, the midst of a merger. And so it was It was definitely a learning experience for me, and it, and it taught me, one, obviously, you never know as much as you think you know, and, and thought I'd probably lose my job, obviously, if the first company I launched on as a strong buy went bankrupt. That would not be good. Uh, but it also taught me that if you can kind of focus on one or two key things, and primarily within industry structure and you're a long-term investor, meaning multiple years, you can get some things really right. You know, it took a long time for that investment, for those investments to really play out. Uh, You know, we also had a large investment in Delta Airlines through the same period. And Delta, I'm just going off a recollection here, but all through 2011, you know, would get up to $7 and I think our average cost was whatever, mid, mid single digits. So I felt great, but then it'd promptly go down to $5 and then it'd go up to $8 then it'd go back down to $5. And it just didn't seem like anybody else saw what we saw. But at the same time, they were generating free cash. They were delevering the balance sheet. Uh, they hadn't bought back any stock at the point at that point. They hadn't paid a dividend at that point. But you could see where they were going, and you could see how the model was changing before your eyes. But every single day, you had to ask yourself if the market was right or if you were right, and you really just had to sit on your hands. You know, 2011, that was a $5 stock, and now Delta's considered easily one of the best airlines in the world. It's, I don't know where it is today, probably low 50s. So that one worked out. United worked out. You know, there's a lot that I missed in there as well. But um, when you're investing in these hyper cyclical, extremely volatile industries, 
and you take anything more than a two-year view, the discipline is really just in sitting on your hands and not doing anything because you're paid to do things. Every profession, you're essentially paid to do things, except for this one. This one, I don't know, 90% of the time, you should be paid to not do things, but it's really hard. You're fighting human emotion. You're fighting managers. You're fighting intuition, but you know, finding a way to stay focused on the long-term thesis is, is really key, I think, in investing in, in sectors like this. And, you know, and ultimately I ended up being wrong on Delta anyways. We sold in the mid-20s and the stock promptly went to 50. So, you know, like a classic value person, I, I, I left a ton of money on the table and, and we could have done a lot better with it. But that, that, was, it, that was a learning experience, mostly in human emotion and self-awareness than anything I could have gotten covering another industry. As, you know, one, starting out with oil at a peak, which did, did turn out to be a peak. And then two, obviously going through the financial crisis, covering what was at the time known as the worst industry known in the history of capitalism. What was Buffett's rationale then for not investing in, in airlines? And clearly he changed. And I remember watching a video of you on television where the reporter's asking this question so people can actually go look like a previous whatever Bloomberg or CNBC interview. They ask you about this Buffett question, but what was it then that changed? And then now Buffett is actually invested in airlines. So I don't know, obviously, directly, but my, my hunch is one. So his initial view was just because of the competitive capacity of the industry. You know, he made a large investment in US Air back in the early 90s, I believe, and, and had lost a little bit of money on it. I actually think it turned out to be profitable for him, but it was not a fun experience for him nonetheless. And he learned very quickly how much capacity can come in the market and change the supply demand equation in, in the airline industry very quickly. Uh, Julian Robertson and Tiger learned the same thing in the late nineties. So my, my guess is that he just finally maybe revisited the industry and, and realized that it had gone from 12 major players in the mid-90s to four major players in the 2011s and beyond. And at the same time, that improvement in the competitive dynamic led to things you want to see, which is you know higher returns on capital and a return of capital by the industry you know, and you had these airlines paying dividends and buying back a, a lot of stock, uh, depending on the airline, yet still getting these rock bottom valuations because there were still very few believers when he made his investment, which I believe was in early 2017. So he was late to the party, but he still got in on, on attractive terms because it still felt like nobody believed in these things after they had gone up, you know, tenfold. So I think he was kind of just happy buying, you know, a basket for him, which was the big four, rather than picking one and just let them continue to return capital and improve the business model and trusted that over a very long period of time, his downside was probably fairly limited because so much capital was getting returned to him. You know, and it has some correlation to the railroad industry going, their epiphany and transformation happened in in the 90s, I believe the, the mid to late 90s. But that was a disastrous industry, you know, from 
the beginning of time up until that point when you had consolidation and you ended up with BNSF, UP, and whatever, CSX or, or whatever major railroads were left. But it, it went from probably a dozen or so down to, I think, I think like four primary big, big rails. And so he probably recognized that pattern, um, which he's obviously been successful buying a railroad and was comfortable parking capital there for a long time. I think he's made a little bit of money at this point, but you know, he, it's been two years. He doesn't, I don't think he cares. Like as long as they continue to pay a dividend and buy back stock and ship away and, and try and improve the business, you know, it, it, it should work out fine. I mean, there, there's really a very simple way of looking at it that on the surface is simple, even though you have to be a little more technical in it. But, you know, the marathon asset management guys always looked at, you know, just whether or not capital was going in or capital was coming out of an industry. Capital's going in, returns are going to go down. You probably don't want to be there. Capital's coming out, might be a good place to be. The problem is you can be wrong on the timing on either side by a decent amount, uh, but it's it's a good it's a good lesson. If, if capital's coming out of an industry, unless it's, you know, the buggy whip industry, it's probably going to be a good value and interesting and profitable for an investor at some point in time over a several year period. So that's kind of how I've approached how I, at a basic level, have started my process as well. To be clear, I've also just been lucky that the two industries I, were, I was given were highly cyclical, very capital intensive, and largely just hated by investors, which I, I absolutely love. It just suits my personality. So you were given two cyclical industries. The other one was MLPs, I'm assuming you're talking about. But at the same time, I didn't realize that MLPs were a relatively new asset class, at least for public investors, in the mid-2000s. I thought they, I mean, I know that there have been, there were, there were a few that have been around since the early 80s. The first one was what, like a propane company in the early 80s? And yeah, I think the Boston Celtics were a MLP at one point. Oh, were they? Yeah, I oh. believe so. But it was really around the early to mid-2000s where MLPs started to become an asset class for public investors. And you were at Janus, and given that sector around that same time frame, and my understanding from somebody who wasn't there and somebody who doesn't really understand the accounting behind it for mutual funds. It, it was somewhat complicated for a mutual fund company to invest in this particular asset class. And you were the guy who covered this asset class and pushed or at least compelled a lot of portfolio managers to invest in MLPs. Am I, am I wrong there? No, I think you're, you're right and wrong. I would say the primary proponent of it was was the director of research, Jim Goff, who knew the industry pretty well. He was the one that told tax and accounting to figure it out because the opportunity set was large enough that it was worth the incremental cost for them to figure it out, which I think is fairly unique. A lot of institutions have come around, but but Janus was by far one of the... I know we weren't the first, but we were one of the first large mutual fund companies to buy MLPs in a decent size. And it was because, you know, Jim knew that the opportunity was great enough to kind of say, let's figure it out, guys, on on the accounting side of it, which made a ton of sense. So I'd give more credit to him from an institutional standpoint on getting there. 
and then for me, obviously, as the analyst, like having to pick up the stocks, you know, it became pretty clear to me that there were some some good companies in there that, you know, nobody had ever heard of. Out of Enron came EOG, which is probably the most successful shale company in the U.S. by far. And then also came out of that was Kinder Morgan, which is one of the biggest pipeline companies. And so it was a matter of like looking at these assets and realizing a ton of money had been made in pipelines and processing and fractionation over time. And a lot of, a lot of families had gotten extremely wealthy off of it, which, you know, clearly means that there's something to it. It's a pretty good business, but institutional investors generally were just not, not aware of it. Like, I think it blew, you know, people's minds that, you know, the Duncan family was the wealthiest family in Texas and nobody had ever heard of them. And it was from a guy, Dan Duncan, who started this company back in, I think the sixties with like one asset, like a truck yeah. and built it up into a $60 billion company or rich kinder, you know, took like, I think one asset from Enron and was able to build that into Kinder Morgan, which I, I don't know off the top of my head what the market cap of Kinder Morgan is today, but he's done extremely well with it. And so it was, it was recognizing that there was uh, one, an asset class that was largely ignored by Wall Street, and then two, a set of assets within energy that were not a correlation of one with oil and gas prices that spit out a lot of cash, which, you know, my core investment philosophy as it's evolved and it continues to evolve and it's, it's probably related to the industries I've covered, but I love just getting capital from a company, whether they're paying you a large dividend or they're buying back a lot of stock, it, it changes the risk reward equation. Again, if you can have the time horizon to deal with the volatility and, and hold on. And these companies obviously do that. They pay out a lot of a lot of cash in the form of distributions, which are quote unquote tax preferred because it's a partnership structure. But, the, but that model is, is, is changing as we speak, and it's changed a lot over the past year or two years. But the assets are key. You know, they're some of the best assets in the world, you know, that you know, you have standard oil pipeline assets that are still in the ground. John Rockefeller probably signed the paperwork on that were fully depreciated 70 years ago, and you're still getting cash spit out of them. Like, that's a pretty darn good business. You know, it's hard to replicate that business. Even with all the money in the world, you could not go to Mont Bellevue and build what's in Mont Bellevue now because of real estate location, permitting rights, all those things. And so to me, that makes it overall an interesting asset class. And then it was obviously interesting within energy because, you know, it wasn't as, as whippy as the rest of energy. It wasn't as high beta. And they actually cared about returns on capital and, and giving capital back to shareholders, which to this day remains somewhat unique in the energy landscape. You know, one of the issues that have plagued midstream companies over the past going on like five years now, yeah. <laughs> almost, which is their inability to raise capital, which then stymies their ability to actually grow the business because traditionally the model was issue shares, pay a dividend, and in exchange, you know, they get funding for growth projects because you are running a fund that has a lot of midstream companies in the portfolio and you're somebody who's covered the industry for a long time, I'd be really interested to hear what your take is on just sort of the state of midstream right now. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
So to be clear, when I first started covering the space, I actually thought the construct made a lot of sense. If Because these companies paid out such a high percentage of their cash flow, which was great because we got our 6 7 8% distribution check every quarter or every year, if they wanted to go out and build a project, they had to come back and ask for capital, which I'm okay with because if you have a company you trust, if you have a company that historically has earned well above their cost of capital, that doesn't seem like a terrible model. It's you know somewhat equivalent to the private equity model, I suppose. And so by and large, like I, I uh, although I'm currently completely proven wrong by the way the industry is going, I don't think it's a terrible choice other than you're paying investment bankers a ton of money. And, and clearly there were companies that were not disciplined with capital that were still part of this scheme that were issuing shares. And part of that may have been to help cover their distribution, you know, in some type of kind of Ponzi scheme type of manner. And so once again, it was just a matter of, I, I think on the surface, was probably okay and actually made some sense in a discipline and governance standpoint, but then the bad actors ruined it for everybody. And so now where we're at is nobody can go out really and issue shares regularly when they need to, to build projects. So they all have to switch to this internally funded model, which for some companies means cutting the distribution. For some companies, it means just growing it slower. I'm clearly opposed to companies cutting distributions, which I've been on the wrong side of a few times, and it's never good. But ideally, if the larger, more competitively advantaged companies can fund their mid-single-digit dividend yields with mid-single-digit growth internally, like that's a great solution because they don't have to issue shares, they don't have to take on you know a ton of debt to do it, and again, the compounding effect kind of takes over. I think what I do have an issue with is this cascade of institutional investors trying to force MLPs convert to a C-corp for the simple reason that it will attract more institutional money and drive the share price up. It just, again, if you take a long-term perspective, it just seems absolutely crazy to me. Why, why you would ever go from electing what might be an effective 3 or 4% type of tax rate to a 20% tax rate, all because more people, oddly enough, think that's more attractive. It just is totally perverse. So that makes no sense. And then on the other side of that, you're also assuming that the tax rate stays at historically low levels, which clearly might not be the case if certain people you know, win the election in, in the next 12 plus months. So... I just think that's a matter of, again, people being short term. You know, if you take a really good company that is a 10% free cash flow yield and has a 2% tax rate, why you would want to turn that into 20% just because your shares might go up 15 to 20% on that news is just crazy to me. I mean, f- uh, for me personally, you know, there's a few of my holdings that I'm, I might own forever. Um, I probably will own forever. And so, would I feel pretty good if a 15 or 20% position goes up 20% over the course of a week because of that news? Yeah, I'd feel okay, but it's not the holy grail. I'd rather get that 6 to 7% tax-preferred distribution for the next 20 or 30 years than I would have it be non-tax-preferred 
and have the, the shares go up 15 to 20%. So I, I, again, it's just a mismatch of what people want. And when, when you work for one company or one portfolio manager or one person or a group of people, like you want that short-term pop because it makes you look good. Maybe it increases your year-end bonus. But after you get that, you move on and you got to find the next great thing. As an investor in that company, that's the last thing you'd want. Like 20% is nothing. Like I'd, I'd stress out more about finding another great company after I sold those shares than I would about not getting my 20%. So I, I, I take a lot of issue with this push towards conversion to C-Corp and reducing cash flow for equity holders because it probably leads to a small increase in the share price. Who's responsible for that push? Is it primarily institutional investors who think that just makes sense longer term? Yeah, I, it seems to be because, again, other than being a short-term retail trader, I don't know why you would think that that's an advantage. But from an institutional standpoint, you know, they might not see the tax benefit of having a tax-preferred distribution anyway. So to them, they'd rather have the bird in the hand than doing the bush and... And so that's what they would go for. And and unfortunately, it's just been supported by these conversions from, you know, Blackstone to KKR to XYZ MLP, that there is clearly and obviously a larger audience for a C-Corp security than a partnership security. But I just, I, I don't know. I've never, I've never, I've never found it to be a logical argument to do something just because a few more people might view it favorably and be willing to pay a little bit more for your stock. But you look at it today and it's like One Oak, which is a C-Corp, OKE, and it's like at a 5% uh, dividend yield uh, versus like an enterprise products, which is a partnership, and it's close to like a 6.5% distribution yield today. And the 6.5% is tax preferred. The 5% is not. It's taxed as a dividend. And... That's like the arbitrage opportunity I guess people see when enterprise has a better business model. They're both good business models, but enterprise is really good. And so I guess people look at that and they say, look at enterprise could trade from six and a half to, to five. But if you're an actual investor, if you're a buyer of businesses, wouldn't you rather have that stay at six and a half and every year take your six and a half and buy more six and a half? Like, I just don't get it. Like if you have to be mark to market and you're comparing yourself every December 31st to the arbitrary benchmark, like, I guess it makes sense, but it's, it's counter to, I think, the core of what we do, which is buy good businesses, let them generate cash, let them pay it out, reinvest those cash flows. You know, we're not, we're not flipping houses, we're not flipping assets here, you know, despite the fact that most people seem to. I, I remember when you made it clear that you were leaving Janus. I wrote a goodbye letter to Chris Kelly, and it took me a little bit of time to do the research, but just looking at your performance numbers, you had some of the best performance over a long period of time, some of the best performance in the entire company. And I'm just kind of curious, what was the motivation to leave Janus if you did so well there and you had a great reputation in terms of solid performance and culture carrier. What was that motivation to leave? I changed as an investor. I changed as a person, but the institution changed as well. And a lot of the people that I think I connected with 
from an investment perspective, had left over the years prior to me. And I, and I think from Janice's perspective and my own perspective, it probably just wasn't necessarily a great fit anymore. And so it was a good time to move on. But, you know, I, I clearly have some deep-seated desire to just do something entrepreneurial and do something on my own. And, you know, people always say paint your own picture. It's such a cliche, but it's true. So, you know, when you're, when you're doing something that's a mix of, you know, math and art, which I think investing is, or behavioral science and economics – you know, you have to take all the handcuffs off. You have to have complete freedom and a blank canvas to do what you do to really see how good you are at it. And and I just always had that desire to do that at some point. It was just a matter of picking the time. So so what about the institution and maybe not just Janice in particular, but what, what was the realization that you came to that underlined the fact or highlighted the fact that you are now different or at least you think differently from how institutional asset management has cha- had changed over the past 10, 15 years? Well, it goes back to really evaluating that principal agent problem. And as a principal of capital, like I always thought you needed to manage money like you were managing all of your own money. Now, whether or not you were good at that is aside from the question. The, the question is, if you're managing all your family's money, how do you manage that? And and you should have a fiduciary obligation to manage all outside capital just as you manage your own money because hypothetically, nobody's capital is more important than your family's. And any institution that is set up for other stakeholders will naturally have friction within that relationship, especially if you have public shareholders. The public shareholders of a mutual fund company should ultimately only care about how well the fund holders do, but they get distracted and they care about short-term performance. And so those things don't always align. You know, when you get a really comfortable salary and a really nice bonus, you stop worrying so much about ultimately how you're performing and how you can maintain that salary and maintain that bonus. And so the incentives just get out of whack. And, and, I, and I thought the only way to really get back to that was, again, to go back to that structure where you know all of your investors, you know them intimately, you have all of or most of your own capital aligned with them, and you only get paid if you do well. And so then the question becomes, how do you measure, are you doing well or not, which is maybe a whole separate podcast. But outside of that you and me relationship, which every money management business is, it gets convoluted. And so, you know, stepping outside of that, I think is, is really just what you have to do if you, one, want to see how good you are. And then two, I think get to the core of what this industry probably should be, which is highly concentrated, focused investing with very intimate relationships with your investors on one end or 100% passive on the other end, nothing in between. And so rather than go 100% passive, I'm on the other end, highly concentrated, highly focused, performance fee, intimate relationships with my investors. So what's going on in the middle? My gripe and every investor's gripe that's invested in that middle space should obviously just be with investment management industry, but I think it's just applicable to industry and capitalism and 
big social groups in general. And so I think one way to approach it is to really think about if there were no investment management industry today, based on what we know, how would this industry develop? And I really think that it would develop as mostly passive. If you want to be mom and pop 401k investor for the next 40 or 50 years, just buy the index, pay whatever, two or three basis points and call it a day. And then the other end of the spectrum, which I mentioned, I think is pretty concentrated, focusing on, not necessarily focusing on specific sectors, but staying within a a small circle of, of competence and really just being paid if you outperform some relatively arbitrary benchmark. I don't think what would exist is the investment portfolio where you pay 1% a year to be benchmarked to some extremely arbitrary small sliver of the investment universe and own 100 stocks and a quote-unquote big position be a 3% position. In my opinion, that model should go away and I think it will go away because we know throughout the past 30 years that it's been very hard for the the typical mutual fund manager to outperform. And we also know from, you know, Harry Markowitz that the second year over whatever 30 stocks in a portfolio, like the efficient frontier, whatever whatever that means and however inapplicable it is to anything we do, you know, statistically it has some meaning anything above 30 stocks, like you're just kind of wasting your time. I think it's actually probably much lower than that for an investment portfolio. But the, but the point is made is like, I, I don't understand why you would own 101% positions or even 52% positions and hope you do well. And in the main, meantime, you know, shave off 1% at the start of every year and give that away to somebody who might look like they're on the hamster wheel Monday through Friday working really hard, but really isn't doing much and is actually being somewhat counterproductive. So that would just be my point is I I think if it were all burnt to the ground today and started from scratch, that middle world wouldn't exist because without somebody selling something, it just has no reason to exist. The problem is, is you have a lot of money being made at these institutions and other institutions that consult for them or advise them or advise clients, you know, that are making a lot of money off of this, this business because it's completely scalable. You know, you can kind of do the same thing, you know, at a billion dollars that you can with a hundred million, you can kind of do the same at 10 billion that you can with a billion. And so you just, you're just able to, to make a lot more money, the more assets you gather. So that's what it's become is the asset gathering industry rather than the asset management industry. You know, Munger talks about the croupier's take, I think he had estimated at one point in some speech he gave it like three and a half percent, which sounds realistic to me between all the people that are getting paid, you know, for you to own your 100 stock mutual fund that probably is going to underperform whatever arbitrary benchmark it has is, is crazy. I mean, that's what, at a $10 billion fund, that's $300 million. That's a lot of money. Yeah. So clearly you can see why people are incentivized to to make it look like what they're doing is value added and beneficial to people and helpful and interesting and smart. But on the flip side of that, you know, the investors are to blame as well because there's a lot of inertia. I have 
family, friends who, for whatever reason, asked me to look at their 401k and one, they have no idea what's in there. They haven't made changes to it in a decade. And so there's just this massive inertia from the primarily the retail investor base that lets this model exist. But there's starting to be cracks in that and it's starting to come down. And this doesn't mean every active mutual fund manager is, is not worth their fee. There's there's clearly some. I, I just it's probably well less than five percent would be my ballpark guess. My personal view that it's a self perpetuating cycle in the sense that a four hundred one K, what can you invest in? Oftentimes, 401ks don't allow you to even invest in individual stocks, let alone hedge funds. You know, For example, when we were at JNS or even before JNS, when I was at my previous company, I had only Deutsche Bank with whom I could buy mutual funds from. Yeah. And then while at Fidelity, it was Fidelity or Vanguard. Yeah. And so it's like this self-perpetuate, like they only allow you to do invest with a certain number of people. So it's almost like, I don't know, I feel like the chips are stacked against you in the sense that you don't have options Correct. with a 401k or a retirement account. It's super, account. well, it's super perverse because, you know, as a quote unquote, you know, hedge fund, or I guess whatever I'm labeled by governing bodies, you know, I have to have high net worth individuals as my investors. So you have to have a lot of money to invest any money with me. You know, I can't take my dad's 401k and invest it in my fund. And they think that they're protecting the small investor by doing this. But, and I guess to some degree they are, because I'm sure you have a, a lot of, you know, shysters that are just setting up these investment partnerships that'll rip your money off. But, you know, they're not protecting the investors on the other side. They're not protecting my father or my friend's mother from investing with these shady insurance salesmen that are now in the variable annuity business that easily take that 3% off the top. And I guess they're okay because they come through, a, those investment products come through a major company and there's a lobby for that industry. And so it is very perverse. Like I, I, I really love the fact that what I do helps people or, you know, theoretically it should help people accumulate wealth, but I'm being told I can only help the wealthy, which is something I'm really struggling with right now because I really want to help the school teacher with a several hundred thousand dollar IRA that was left by her deceased husband. She doesn't know what to do with that. It's with some variable annuity salesperson. I would love to take that, but I can't charge a performance fee and manage that money. I can only charge a management fee, which is insane to me. And then I also have to set up a separate structure to run it as a separately managed account. I can't run it within my partnership. It's just backwards. So everything that's in place today is, is just the way that the industry evolved. And unfortunately, there's so much money in it that it's going to take a long time and some very brave souls to really change the structure of the industry. But you're right. Like if you have a 401k with company XYZ and they give you five options, one, you're not going to know really what's good and what's not. And two, if there's nothing good, well, you can park it in uh, a money market account and make 10 basis points a year. It's just not fair to most of the investing public. But I don't, I don't know how to fix that. But it's, it's a serious issue. It's a serious issue. So you talked about the bloated structure of the industry that's in the middle between the passive and the concentrated. And I think it's interesting that you brought it up because you and I were both talking about an article that was in the Wall Street Journal about Jeffrey Vinnick, who has just closed his fund after 
what was it, eight, eight, seven? Eight months. Eight months. And also saying that he will not close this time, but he ends up closing it. And he, and he already had something like 500 some odd million dollars of other people's money under management. What's going on there? Like you talk about the perverse nature of the industry participants in the middle. And I feel like there's also this a really bad reputation that a lot of hedge funds get. And I could see your hesitation in describing your fund as a hedge fund because I get the sense that maybe there are some people out there like yourselves who are more interested in helping out other people with their investments, with their wealth management, while at the same time making money. But there is this just reputation within the hedge fund industry where they're just out to make money. And I think an outsider looking in, when they read an article like that, where a guy who had already made a lot of money at, at Fidelity and then already raised a ton of money for his hedge fund, decides to close it down. I mean, what, what do you think is going on within that part of the industry that you think is perverse and something that, I mean, if it's like a reputation that you would kind of like to buck within the context of you opening up your own fund, what would that be? It's tough to answer because it makes zero sense to me. Because <laughs> 500 million is nothing to sneeze at. You know, if you assume he was a, even a one in 10, let's call it a, a one in 10 model. So he was making $5 million a year just off the one. And if, you know, he happened to be up 10% in a year, he'd make another 5 million. So that's 10 million bucks. You know, I guess maybe that's not a lot for a guy worth a billion dollars. Maybe his operating costs were super duper high. I, I, I don't know. I, I think he's a fundamental investor for the most part. And so I don't, I don't know why the business cost itself would be so high, but, you know, it seems to me, and I think he even said this in the article, you know, that he, or in his letter to the employees or investors is that he wanted to get to $3 billion by, I think the end of March of 2020 to make the economics work. It's crazy. That is crazy. I don't know what, I don't know why he had to get there. Maybe there's something I don't understand, but my guess is as he looked at it, he just wasn't, he just wasn't going to be able to make enough money personally at $500 million to make it worth his time to do this, which is fine. I mean, if, if he's got the track record to be able to do it and to say, you know, unless I'm making $40 million a year doing this, it's not worth my time. then that's, that's his prerogative. You know, if, if the bid on LeBron James is only $5 million a year and he knows he can make 40 playing basketball, then he should probably just not play basketball that year because he's not being paid for what he does. But to me, as, as a guy just, you know, starting up, it just doesn't make any sense to me because, again, it's it's like, you know, I, I'm going to go a lot of years without making any money at all. But Hopefully I'm, not. Well, hopefully not. <laughs> but and, and, and I obviously don't have a billion dollars. I mean, I would be much more comfortable with my model if I had a billion than not. And so that's, that's where I don't, I don't quite understand where he's coming from other than he just is maybe in it to, to make more money clearly. And, and I'm in it to make money. But the key is like, if I make a lot of money, it's because my investors have made a lot of money as well. And without that tie, without that relationship, I, I just, I just don't know how people don't go to bed feeling dirty every single night. Like, 
the the one in twenty model or the one in the two in twenty like doesn't even talk about it, but even a one in twenty model like should should be toast because I mean unless unless your unless your performance is that good that that's just the price for that capital like that that's totally fair. Renaissance, you know, if they were charging three and forty like that, you'd probably still invest your money and and still do great. That's totally fair. But the startup person to charge one in twenty, I mean, that's 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 ludicrous. Again, if 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 all I got was to twenty million dollars of capital and I had that model and I thought I could do ten percent a year, like that's what six hundred grand a year. Like that's a decent amount of money compared to the rest of the world and 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 what should be reality for not doing that great. Like I just I don't see where if I ran twenty million dollars of capital. And I annualize ten percent a year. That my take of society should be six hundred grand a year. It just seems completely out of whack. When there's some ER doc somewhere saving lives, making a fraction of that, adding a lot more to society. It just, it's just, or let's call it as much. Yeah. Like that's insane. Yeah. And so I think you just have to have some awareness of kind of where you fit in to the greater ecosystem and what your value to society is. Some people are just comfortable taking more from society than than they're offering up. And to me, it's just not the way I want to live my life and, and, and especially run my partnership and be responsible for other people's money. I know that you've had conversations with a couple of different, I don't know if it's endowments or universities, who have made some really interesting, at least from my perspective, some really interesting comments to you about just the longevity of an asset manager or a fund. Do you mind just going over that just a little bit and talking about what does that mean to you? What, what do you take from the, those types of conversations that you have with endowments or a fund? To me, the point is, is that there are actually some people out there who seem to get it. And the good thing for somebody like me is, while it might take a decade or even two decades for them to be partners with me, they at least get what I'm doing and they appreciate what I'm doing and they understand what I'm doing and they support what I'm doing. And they also like to invest in that manner. They have zero interest in, in a manager that hugs some benchmark. I mean, I, I don't need zero is like a generous percentage to, to their level of interest. And they take a long-term view from their perspective. If I were on the outside looking at me, I'd be the exact same way because one, I'm an entrepreneur because I have this business Two, I'm an investment manager, which is related to the business. And so you have to see how I'm going to act uh, as both because that's what they're investing in. Um, that's what they're giving you their capital for. And so they take a very long-term view before they put capital with you because they want to see how you're going to react to maybe different markets as an investor, but also different business circumstances as an entrepreneur, you know, one of the things that I've I've said is if I can't make my partnership work, it's because I'm a bad manager of my own money, which means I shouldn't be managing other people's money. But that's just a fact. Like if I can't make this work based off of zero management fee and a performance fee and even very little capital, like I just have no business doing this business. And these guys would agree with that. You know, I've got a really good friend out in LA who's been very helpful through all of this. And, you know, he's been spot on. There's the, peop the people you want as investors in your partnership 
are the people that will probably end up investing and it's going to be the perfect match because they're going to understand how you invest. They're going to understand you as a person and they're not going to be the ones that pull their capital when something goes sideways for a year or two years, which is really all you want. I mean, it's, it's, it's truly a partnership. It's a, it's a relationship. It's, it's trust. And so to find these family offices or these endowments that, you know, manage several billion dollars, but are able to, to view the world that way is refreshing. And it's, and it's, it's key. I mean, it, it, it's kind of kept me, I wouldn't say it's kept me going, but it's, it's given me more hope for uh, what I'm doing and, and what other people like me who are doing what I'm doing. You know, it give, it's given me more hope for our ability to actually make this uh, a, a worthy endeavor over time. Because, you know, sometimes you just, if everybody says you're crazy, at some point you kind of start thinking you might actually be crazy. But when you get a couple smart people that you respect that say, oh, yeah, like that's all we do, then you're kind of, you kind of start thinking maybe you're onto something. So, so you mentioned this other source of income. I think it might be worth talking about it because from an outsider looking into your business, I see how you are diversifying your own portfolio. At the same time, I know that you did want to put this business into something that could be kind of like a public-private partnership where you could build something outside of just, you know, public equities. But I, I think it might be just kind of interesting for listeners to hear what you're doing outside of investing as a business owner. So I ended up two, almost two years ago, buying a, a little Polaris dealership up in the middle of Wyoming, a town called Lander, Wyoming. And there was a couple of reasons I did it. One is because... I always wanted to own a small business. I just find it terribly interesting. The small details of a business are fascinating and then highly relevant to a public market investor because at the end of the day, that's really all you're doing is buying living, breathing organisms. You're just buying a fraction of them. And it's a good way to ground me in that belief, uh, specifically when it concerns valuation and, and, and fundamental volatility. But then aside from that, it was also a way for me to buy an asset that some years might cover my family's living expenses. Some years might not. It, it obviously depends, but it would be close, which would also allow me to manage my partnership the way that I wanted to. Originally, I thought it would make sense to be able to combine both, again, because I just wanted to invest people's money exactly how my money was invested. But once again, the complexity of the legal universe and the accounting universe and all these other layers that get involved in this made it seem like it was going to be too complicated at this point in time, just based on the small scale. I'd love to do it at some point in the future. I just don't know how I'm going to do it exactly. But so I kept that business outside of the partnership for those reasons. But it's helpful because it generally gives me some cash flow every month to pay bills and stuff uh, and allows me to, to keep most of my capital within the partnership structure without having to pull some out to pay for, you know, living expenses and whatnot. And, and, and it's, it's amazing because what I paid for this business is, is, is not outlandish. It was definitely a, a value purchase, but it's a, a cash flow business. It's a cash flow positive business, but the cash flows are all over the place, probably just like every other business in America. You know, maybe with the exception of a, the few that are at 100 times earnings and maybe should be. 
And, and to think that the valuation of my own little private business could go down two or three or four or 5% every single day based on the whims of public sentiment is just absolutely crazy to me. Like I, if I step back and I say, if somebody offered me a million dollars for that business today, I'd really have to think about it. And then if they came in tomorrow and said, okay, we'll offer you a million 10, you know, 10% higher, it doesn't, I'd still really have to think about it. It's not like that extra 10% like makes me want to dump it. You know, it would have to be 50% higher or something before I'd be like, yeah, that's fine. And especially if they came in the next day and said, oh, okay, we offered you a million yesterday. We'll offer you 800,000 today. Like it would just blow. I would think that they were crazy. It'd blow my mind. But that's what the public market does. Like it values all these things on the latest data point, which I guess makes sense and, and is efficient. But as a, as a small business owner, like, I can tell you that stuff is all over the place and half the time it makes sense, half the time it doesn't. And very rarely does it add up to any kind of forecast for what tomorrow or next week or next month looks like. And so that's been just absolutely eye-opening to me. And again, it, it ties together with my core investing beliefs. But if you really believe you're buying pieces of a business, which you really are, Without something dramatically changing in the competitive dynamics of your business, if you're if a stock goes from 100 to 80, you should be buying a lot more, not not freaking out. And that's the opposite of what I've experienced. I know you've experienced with some of the stocks you've covered. It's the polar opposite, and sometimes I'm guilty of this too. Whereas I say, you know, a stock is X. If it goes down, you know, X minus 20%, I'm going to back up the truck. And then it gets there and I'm like, oh man, what's going on? People know something I don't. And I don't back up the truck. If I back up anything, it's like an El Camino. You know, and then the stock goes right back to closer to fair value. And you're like, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. But it's just human emotion. It's really hard to do. And so, again, going back to owning a very small private business... It just does help frame up like how irrational the market can be and psychology can be when at the end of the day, you own something that, you know, you need to be able to extract cash from at some point like that. That is the definition of an investment. And if the math around what you think you might be able to extract hasn't changed a ton, then you should be willing to buy quite a bit more at 20, 30 or 40 percent cheaper than you were beforehand and it is possible you should be you know selling some part of that business 50 60 70 percent higher than what you purchased it at so it, it offers me a, a, a fundamental grounding in the way that I look at the business landscape as it relates to human emotions and markets if you could just talk about your thoughts on the capital raising process for a new fund like Leg- legacy Ridge capital so I don't market at all. I, frankly, I don't know how to market. I don't know if there's some secret, you know, skull and bones club that allows you to to reach all these people with deep pockets to invest in your fund or not. But, you know, the last thing I want to do is sit around and talk about how great I think I am because it's extremely uncomfortable to me. You're talking about just on this podcast, right? Yes, just on this yeah. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and again it doesn't it doesn't serve my existing investors well at all i mean i have to be careful because if i'm honest with myself and i could snap my fingers and i could have 100 million dollars of capital today i would be ecstatic but do i want to go out and do 200 meetings to try and raise that capital absolutely not it's just not it's not worth time away from my family it's not worth time away from 
reading and thinking. And so, yes, I, I want to manage more capital than I do. I mean, that's obvious, but but I don't like the marketing process of the business. I don't particularly care to participate in it all that much. I mean, if somebody asks me to come talk to them, I'm more than happy to, but I will probably be ex- very underwhelming because I'm not going to come with a 100-page slide deck and all kinds of crazy statistics on how I perform in certain markets because I just think it's a bunch of hocus pocus. And I would never want to take capital from somebody who invested it based on those documents. And so I'm more interested, I think, in going about it long and slow and and hopefully word of mouth. And and again, if and if and if I'm not good and there's no word of mouth, then I shouldn't manage money. Like that's just a that's just a fact. And people aren't comfortable with that. But I think I have an obligation to my investors and to society to allocate my energy elsewhere if if I just can't prove it out. Now, there's a lot of vagueness around how you measure that, but I'll, I'll know. I think I'll, I'll feel it and I'll know. And so I just want to do it slowly and by word of mouth. I mean, I think you have to you have to think about, you know, the businesses that we invest in and it's like, do you really want to invest in the business that has to spend so much of their revenue on advertising to get people to come to their product? Probably not. You'd probably rather own a business that, you know, people just showed up because they're necessary. So I take it you don't want me to talk about the $10,000 you gave me to come onto the podcast? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So as you know, I interviewed Ted Seides and mm-hmm. I was asking him about fees and he's looking at it more from like a business capital allocator's perspective. So maybe in an endowment fund or something. But I was saying to him like, hey, look, why?" And I understand that fees are coming down, but with maybe more traditional fee structures like the one that you have implemented, which is the famous Buffett structure, are allocators or investors more interested in, again, kind of these more investor-friendly types of structures as compared to the traditional two in 20 or one in 10. And I'm, I'm very curious whether or not when you have these conversations with people, do you feel like their ears perk up a little bit? Or do you feel like you know, the fees aren't, it, it's more the individual and the investor than it is the fees? I think it depends. I think the institutions, the endowments, the family offices, I think they get it. I think the individual investor doesn't really understand understand that, you know, a 1% drag on performance or even a 50 basis point drag on performance over two decades is massive. And so one, you know, one, I don't, I'm not sure that they understand just what a performance fee over a hurdle rate even means. Two, I don't think they understand what a management fee necessarily means. And so you have to explain a little bit of it, but people just are, are, are naturally not inclined to appreciate this is this is stealing a, a line from Nicholas Sleep, who I absolutely admire, the longevity of compound and the longevity of compound on 100 basis points or 50 basis points over 20 or 30 years is massive. And for me to just take that to send my kids to private school or drive a BMW or something is just absolutely crazy to me. And it's, and it's, again, some, some people can charge what they want because they're so good. But if you haven't proven that it's, it's somewhat akin to stealing money from people in my opinion. And so I don't think the retail investor, the individual investor really appreciates that. 
and, and you have to be careful because you can really confuse people when you get into the, into the weeds on this stuff. But the endowments, the large institutions, I think they generally appreciate it and they recognize it because they've, they've probably been on the wrong side of that principal agent relationship so many times. They, they appreciate kind of what that alignment does, but there clearly needs to be more education about what that means. I mean, it's, you know, uh, Kipchoge, the Kenyan runner who just broke oh, yeah, yeah. the two hour mark on oh, that was because of his shoes, the right? marathon. It may have been because of his <laughs> Nike shoes. Uh, but, but you think about that, like the guy ran, I think an hour, 59 minutes and, and some odd seconds for 26.2 miles. And if you look at his mile splits, it's insane. It's like, I'm, I might be wrong here, but I think it's like 434 a mile and the variation was like 434 to 436. If you would have gone to Kipchoge before that race and said, listen, Kipchoge, you got to hand us five seconds every mile just off the top. It doesn't sound like a lot, but over 26.2 miles, he wouldn't have come close to breaking that record. And so if you can think about how that adds up over the long term as far as running a, a race, like it's every second is meaningful. And so when you're talking about 1% versus 0.02%, that's insane. That's, that's, that's clearly the difference between doing okay and not doing okay if you have anything over a, whatever, five or 10 year time horizon. Whose money do you want to manage? Is there a type of investor? I, I guess my ideal investor, the, the key characteristic for my ideal investor is somebody who's patient and understands that this is a, at a minimum, a multi-year endeavor Ideally, it's a multi-decade endeavor, but what I'm definitively not looking for is, is somebody who's interested in being really dialed into the six-month or the one-year performance uh, because that's going to be all over the place, just the nature of owning five to ten stocks and owning five to ten stocks in two hyper-cyclical sectors. But aside from that, you know, as of right now, they obviously have to meet, you know, the rules of the SEC and be an accredited investor, meet the minimum requirements. And that might change in the very near future if I set something else up that gets non-accredited investors around that. But um, it, it really just comes down to their patience, their temperance, their faith in me and their ability ultimately to just not get concerned when things go down a lot because that's that's just been proven time and again to be uh, the curse of institutional and retail investors is freaking out and selling everything at the bottom and, and going to all cash or going to whatever's hot and I'm going to do the opposite. I'm more likely to turn off my monitor and not pay attention at the bottom unless there's cash to invest and then we'll invest more money at the bottom, but with a multi-year and a multi-decade outlook, you can't get freaked out on the six-month, the one-year, the two-year, and, and it might turn out to be a three- or five-year soft period because those come up, and you've got to get through them. You can't get off track. You can't get away from your philosophy. You can't get away from the things that you know and understand, and you just have to be 
smart and not make big mistakes and and hopefully get capital through that cycle so you've got more money to invest and then come out even better than you were going in. You know, so high net worth retail would be my preferred investor, I think. But then institutional that has very few relationships I would be fine with or endowment with very few relationships I'd be fine with as well because I really want to keep it small and really keep it a a real partnership where uh, my partners can pick up the phone and call me whenever they want uh, and vice versa. And I can pick up the phone and talk to them kind of whenever I want. I don't want the, the chain letter where, you know, I'm five people away from, from the actual person who's investing the money. So I'm going to avoid that at all costs, but you know, there's exceptions to every rule, obviously. Something that you mentioned was patience. And I get it because sometimes there's extreme volatility whenever you're running such a highly concentrated portfolio. How, How do you think about the risks involved in running such a highly concentrated portfolio? There's real risk and then there's fake risk. And in my view, the real risk is not the volatility. You know, as always, it's the permanent loss of capital. So it goes back to this Montier framework of, of how to look at risk within a company and it's balance sheet risk, it's business model risk, and it's valuation risk. And so, you know, I think about that individually for, all, for the, the handful of investments that I make. And then, you know, that all rolls up into a portfolio. And so, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable in some areas taking risk in an investment if it kind of rolls up to it not being the glaring risk within the portfolio. Um, but I, I definitely don't think about it as, as volatility. And, and, and I kind of consider that as fake risk because, you know, this year is a perfect example. Energy's out of favor, for sure. Airlines are seemingly always out of favor, while the general stock market is highly in favor. And so the risk this year is you look like a moron running a concentrated portfolio in anything but the S&P 500 or the Russell 2000, you know, which are... are heavily weighted information technology and other sectors that I just I just don't know and don't invest in, you know, so this year on a relative basis, I'm just getting blown out of the water. And so that's that's what I think of as the fake risk. But as a business manager, it is a real risk because, you know, you look like a moron. And if somebody has their money invested in you and they're wondering why they're making so much easy money in their XYZ mutual fund this year, but but you're not making a lot of money for them or any money for them, you know, the risk is they pull their money out at, at the wrong time, which, you know, the way I invest in being so small right now, it's not a big deal. I don't have a key investor that can just cause all kinds of liquidity issues for me or other investors and, and even push the value of my investments down further. And so it's not a huge risk for me. It's a risk for the client and for the partner And so that's, you know, to your point, it kind of ties back to wanting the right kind of partners because they create their own risk for themselves. And as the partnership gets bigger and it grows, like it it can create risk for other partners, but I'll obviously try and mitigate that in the structure of the portfolio because I don't, I I, I never want the real long-term partners to be influenced or negatively affected by the short-term partners. And I, and the way to do that is to try and avoid all short-term partners but it's reputational risk at this point, which, you know, whatever. I don't, it, it hurts, doesn't feel good, but it's not real risk. Like it's investing. It's not, 
it's not some glamour game where I need to feel good about myself and pound my chest. It's what are, what's the portfolio look like? What are we invested in? What are the results? Results relative and absolute this year aren't very good. That's a risk, but it also makes me feel much better about the portfolio than I did 12 months ago. So the future opportunity is probably better than it has been. You just said a few things that highlight an element of honesty that I don't think you see in the in this business very often. You, you mentioned being blown out of the water. And I think it'd be interesting to hear you talk about your thoughts on just how important honesty is in in the business that you're in and in running a fund and how does it impact how you think about your you know conversations with future investors i don't even consider it being honest it's just a fact i mean there's no the beauty of this business is at the end of the day at the end of your track record whenever you hang, hang it up or quit or retire or just stop managing money there's just facts. There's 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 a performance track record there, and and you can you know weigh that however you want. I don't consider it me being honest by stating I'm doing X when the market's doing Y, whether it's positive or negative. It's just it's just a fact. And you know, again, if 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 you use the best example in history, and and by no means do I compare myself or my fund or anybody I know for that matter, to Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett. But if you go back to the opening page every single year of the Berkshire Hathaway letter and you look at his performance track record in book value, uh, market value per share, and the S&P 500, and I, and I don't have this in front of me, so I might be off a little bit. I think he goes back to 1965 off the top of my head when he first bought Berkshire and all the way through Last year, 2018, about a quarter of the time, he is underperforming the S&P 500 in market value per share, I should say, not in book value. And, and, but, that's, but that's an important difference because the market value per share is, is the crowd sentiment versus the book value, which is the true economic value he's added to the business. But the point is, is even you know, arguably the best investor in our lifetimes you know, his company has underperformed the S&P 500 25% of the time. And on average, the years he's underperformed, he's underperformed by, I think, 16 or 17% a year. Big underperformance when he underperforms, big outperformance when he, when he outperforms. And obviously, over decades, he's dramatically outperformed. But, you know, you're going to have those really tough periods Sometimes it's going to make sense why you why you're not doing well. Sometimes it's going to make absolutely no sense why why you're not doing well. The question is, do you think you've bought good values for the next ten or twenty years? Not not do you think you've bought good values that's going to be recognized by the market in the next twelve months? There's people that do that, and I think there's a few people that actually do it pretty well. But I, I don't know how they do it. I know I can't do it. And just the stress about thinking about how to do it is counterproductive for me. And so I take the underperformance in stride. Again, it's, it's really hard. It, you know, 12 months is a pretty long time when you're living it. But 10 years from now, like, you know, 2019 for me will just, you know, be a drop in the bucket kind of, and, and it'll be a bad performance year on a relative basis. And, you know, for my really long-term track record, it's 
it's just not going to be all that meaningful. Now, it'd be different if I were down 50 or 60% or something like that. That's impairing capital potentially for the long term, especially when the market's up 25% plus, but, but that's not the case. It's kind of just investing in things that continue to be hated, but that also kind of goes back to my own philosophy and my preference for companies that either pay a lot of cash out as dividends or companies that repurchase a lot of stock or companies that use a very high free cash flow yield to, to change the, the balance sheet structure of the business. And so there's a shift between debt holders and equity holders in the EV equation because that gets you through those tough periods. And so again, if you can be right on the economics and you're either getting cash, shrinking the share count, or lowering the risk profile of the balance sheet, you're going to come through those periods much better off. But it doesn't mean you're going to, you're just going to go straight up and to the right. And so it's really just about having perspective and trying to think about if if the fundamentals of your investments have, have changed. And I've, I've had one or two over the last couple of years where I, I think I've just been wrong. But by and large, I just think it's value compression in a lot of the names I own. So you mentioned some big names there, and I've had the fortune of hearing you talk about some of the investors that you look up to over the past several years, but would like to talk about it here. Who, who, who in the investment world has had a big impact on you, has influenced you as an investor, and who do you look up to as an investor? Well, I think it, it kind of goes back to the question of why, why I, I got into investing and why I wanted to be an investor. And there's a couple names, uh, some of which people will know, some of which people won't. But one of the lesser known names would be Helen Young Hayes. <clears throat> I've actually never met Helen. I saw her at a Janus cocktail reception a number of years back, but I, I've actually never met her. But I remember reading about Helen in the Denver Post, I believe in 90, 1993 or 1994, I think I was a sophomore in high school. And what she was doing with the overseas fund at the time, and it may have been the worldwide fund at the time. And it was just, it was a great profile of Helen and, and, and what great work she was doing. That's kind of my first memory of reading about an investor and being like, wow, this is a profession that's pretty crazy. And then from there, like a lot of investors, a lot of most value investors in general, my junior year of high school, I remember this distinctly at Walden Books in the mall, picking up, you know, the making of American capitalist, the Buffett biography, and just staring at this thing and reading the back cover and like realizing like the richest guy in America was a dude who wore his pajamas around his house and like worked out of his house essentially the first decade of his life or his career. And so I bought that book and just consumed it in, you know, probably two or three days. And that was the spark. Like, that's when I knew, like, that's what I wanted to do because it was just so interesting to me. And then the unlimited upside on his earning potential was like nothing I had ever seen or heard of before. And so that that got me really kicked off on investing, and which took me to some Peter Lynch stuff, obviously. And, you know, of course, read everything by Buffett, Munger as well, you know, which took me to kind of the, kind of the more modern value investors like Seth Klarman. Um, so those guys were kind of the foundation for, you know, 
it, it's not like how you view the world. It's like how you viewed the world. You just didn't know it because you either get it or you don't, I think. And, and I just agreed with 99% of the way that, that, that somebody like Buffett looks at the world and somebody like Klarman manages a portfolio and looks at the world. Aside from, from those people to lesser known or probably lesser known investors that I really look up to are Paul Reeder at Par Capital. He's done an amazing job. And, you know, from what I understand about Paul, I just love the way that he manages money. I love the way that he conducts himself. And I really look up to him and his firm. Uh, and then Nicholas Sleep, who used to be at Marathon Asset Management and then was a, a partner at Sleep Sicaria and kind of disappeared off the map a number of years ago and ended up closing down his fund and just paying his fund holders, this is my understanding at least, paying his fund holders in kind in stocks that he had owned for decades. And he was just inactive and pretty sure he wasn't going to trade much and didn't see why people should be paying him a management fee for owning 60% of his portfolio in Amazon, Costco, and Berkshire Hathaway. And so this was like before one of those stocks went absolutely parabolic. Costco's done great. Berkshire's been just fine. And rather than make money off all these people, he just closed down the fund and said, don't ever sell these stocks. So I admire his performance as an investor. His writing is off the charts good. And then just his morals to actually do that and say, you know what, There's, it makes zero sense for me to make money off all these people when they already have my best ideas. So let's, let's just do that. And so those would be two lesser known investors that I admire just as much as, you know, Buffett, Munger, Klarman. And then when I came to Janus, people that I actually got to work extremely closely with that I really admired. One was Brent Lynn, who ran the overseas fund, and then David Decker, who ran the contrarian fund. Um, and both of them helped shape me at arm's length just on how to go against the grain, how to be very bold investors, but also do it with a humility and a patience and an understanding that, you know, a lot of times you can look pretty silly. Of all those people that you mentioned, who's had the greatest impact on your investment philosophy? It's, it's Buffett, like easy. But oddly enough, I will say this, it's old Buffett, not new Buffett. Hmm. And there's a big difference. What's the difference? There's Ben Graham Buffett and there's Charlie Munger Buffett. <laughs> and it, it kind of sounds stupid because Charlie Munger Buffett has probably been more successful. Eh, I don't know about that. I'd have to look at the numbers, but it, Char Charlie Munger Buffett was required to manage the amount of capital that Buffett was managing. But Ben Graham Buffett, 1957 through 1970, when he closed his hedge fund, that, that investor has been more impactful on me just because I'm not, I'm not good about buying the high quality businesses at a fair price. I, I, I do hope I get better at it, but I think it takes like obviously a major blowdown in the general stock market to find those. I've definitely gravitated more towards the scrappy bargain hunting. Cigar butts? So, yeah. eh, not even the cigar butts because the market's different to where you don't get a shot at those anymore. But, you know, when Buffett put 40% of his fund in American Express, like back in, I don't know what it was, 64 or 65, like American Express at the time was a good company, but it's not American Express of today. And they had a real scandal on their hands. And this guy just, he had the guts to put 40% of his fund in this thing when it felt, it didn't feel good. Like they had a, 
you know, a potentially a real scandal on their hands. Like that's, I identify much more with that Buffett than I do the Buffett who's just accumulating high quality businesses and, and, and never, never selling them. But I think that's also been potentially his greatest trick of all time is preaching that philosophy because it's now put such a massive bid under all of his businesses because they're high quality, high return on capital businesses that get bid to the moon and, you know, it's helped his performance quite a bit. Yeah. By far Buffett though has been, I mean, it's, 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 it's nothing unique, but he's been such a prolific writer and he's been around so long and he seems to have done it extremely just right. And he's done it for the right reasons that it's hard to have it not be him. So this next question I have for you has two sides to it. I'd just be curious to hear whether or not you see opportunities outside of energy and airlines. And the other side to that question is, is there a sector that despite screaming cheap valuations, you just would not invest in? I think it's a definitive no. Is there a sector I would never invest in? I just, I can't. I'm just like a fly to to shit. And if it stinks a lot, I love to fly around it for some reason. I don't know what it is. Um, There's plenty of industries I probably shouldn't invest in. Uh, Like biotech is a perfect example. But if I, if I came across a plausible, good value investment in bio biotech, it it would be hard for me to avoid because, you know, I mean, it's again, going back to, to, to honesty here. Like I just know that about myself is, and, and it's just, human kind of human psyche is like you get comfortable thinking you know something and I would more than likely fall into that trap. Now, the way to the way to mitigate a potential disaster is obviously make it a, a smaller position and being aware of that, like, I trust me, it would it would you'd have to get to the ninth or tenth inning of that process before I'd make an investment because I just know that about myself. But I'm also highly aware you get to nine, ten, eleven inning <laughs> And if it still looks like a fat pitch to me, I'm probably going to make it. It just won't be a, a, a big heavy cut at the ball. So no, there's no sector I would I would avoid. There's going to be a lot that I avoid, most that I avoid, obviously, um, at all times. But uh, it would be disingenuous for me to say I would avoid anything necessarily. And then outside of energy and, air, and airlines, you know, think there's things that are related, obviously, that um, I think I would be able to get my arms around through time to develop that circle of competence. But I mean, it's just going to come over time as I learn about other things. And then it would come at a time when I made that investment where I thought I couldn't make a lot of money in energy or, or airlines for that matter. And maybe there would be some other sector that I understood that was actually cheap, but, but by and large, it's not going to be the way that I operate, but you know, to just close your brain off and say, I don't want to look at X, Y, or Z because it's not my circle of competence. It's, it's the rational thing to do, but you're always trying to learn and you're always trying to measure opportunity set versus opportunity set. It's just going to take years and decades for me to feel like I have, you know, something else in that quiver. The probability of me doing anything out of energy or airlines, at least for the next five to 10 years is under 10%, low probability. What are you most excited about right now? And and that can relate to either performance. Are you more excited about that now than you are back then? Just, you know, 12 months into it, what are you most excited about? I think I'm most excited about the 
five to 10 year performance of the things I'm invested in on an absolute basis, but especially relative to the rest of the world. And part of that is, you know, it comes back to being relatively smoked this year. <laughs> it, there doesn't seem to be a lot of very interesting things, you know, in the world to invest in. And so I think if you can find a portfolio that you that you think can deliver 10 to 15% type of returns, uh, annualized returns over a five to 10 year period, I, I actually think that's pretty unique. And I think you would beat most indexes for sure over a five to 10 year period. And so I feel really good about the relative value of my portfolio. I feel really good about the absolute value of my portfolio. But if I had to weight the two, it's it's definitely on the relative side, just because, you know, the market's up so much this year. And it just seems like, you know, 10 years into, you know, the greatest economic expansion the U.S. has ever seen, one of the greatest bull markets the U.S. has ever seen. It, it just seems like buying an index fund for the next five to 10 years is maybe 10 years is too much, but five years is, is it just kind of seems like it's, it's going to be weighted towards not having a great outcome. Whereas I am comfortable and continue to invest in things that just pay out cash or, or buy back a lot of very cheap stock. And at some point that will be recognized. And I think it'll turn out well for for the stocks that I own and the sectors that I'm invested in. But um, that's probably the what I'm most excited about. I'm also excited about the fact that I'm essentially done setting up the fund and and I've gone through, you know, the legal process and paying attorney fees. And that's it's good to be beyond all that and just okay. be able to one, not write big checks, and then two, just focus on investing. That is a relief as well. And having gone through a year of doing the auditing, the tax work, just figuring out the structure of running a partnership has been helpful. And I've probably done some silly things and things that have made my administrator or my attorney or, you know, some of these people just wonder what I'm doing because I'm just, I'm just trying to figure it out. I mean, it's, I've never set this up before. And so now I'm starting to get the, the rhythm of just having this partnership open and, and what needs to be done to, to run it as a successful partnership on the business side, not just the investment side. So I know that you read a lot. And what, what for you is the most important investment book or investing book that you'd encourage everyone to read? The obvious ones are there. I think the less obvious ones would be, you know, there's two books uh, written by Marathon Capital. I think it's Capital Returns and Capital Cycle, I think is the first one that came out. Those are good books just because they go year by year and it's kind of like just a collection of their investment letters that kind of talk about their philosophy, which is, again, just money going into a sector. It's probably a bad sector. Money coming out, it's probably a good sector. <laughs> like if you had to boil it down, like that's really all it is. It's obviously more nuanced than that. But um, those are really good books. The Outsiders is a really good book just about good business managers that you know, have simply done a great job by their capital allocation decisions. And I've given this book to a number of company CFOs, company presidents that I know, trying to hammer that point home. And most of them already know it, but um, but they've they've also found it to be a great read. And anybody in business, like that's, you should wake up thinking about it. Like it's, it's, it's how you create value and all the other things are important, but from a returns perspective, like that's almost all that matters. 
And so that's that's a great one. And then if you can get your hands on, again, just going back to Nicholas Sleep, not to totally profess my love for this guy I've never met, um, but his investment letters are, I think, the best I've ever read, including next to Buffett's. It's a different style because Buffett's are great if you don't know a lot about investing because you learn a lot about investing. Nick's are good if you understand the concepts but want maybe a different view of how to think about investing holistically, I think. Like, I would I would love it if Klarman would go back and write another book on investing. His, his annual letters are great. They're fun to read, but they generally address, you know, the prior 12 months, which is, which is fascinating, but I would almost prefer a more in-depth thought process and discussion by him on how the prior 12 months relates to the 12 months prior to that and the 12 months prior to that and a decade prior to, you know, this last decade, all those things, just like his wealth of knowledge for me would be more interesting in a five or 600 page book than a, than a 15 page annual letter. Well, hey, Chris, it's been awesome talking to you and, and, and learning more about your investment philosophy and just, you know, you taking the time to come talk to me and my listeners. So thanks so much for, for coming by and, and doing the interview. Of course. Thank you. Well, that's it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Sincerest thanks to Chris for coming onto the show. I've been wanting to have him on for a long time now, so it's really great to have him finally come on the program. A huge, huge thanks to Danheim. Mike at Danheim gave me permission to use his music, so if you like what you hear, which is Nordic folk music, you should check it out. That's Danheim, D-A-N-H-E-I-M. And then finally, I'd like to ask just one more time for your support. If you get any value out of the stock podcast, please, please consider making a donation or click subscribe or submit a review or just spread the word. Word of mouth really is the best form of advertising. So please tell somebody you know about this program. All right, I'll leave it there. Again, hope you enjoyed the interview. Take care and good luck with your portfolio.